Chapter Eight of Mothering on Perilous by Lucy Furman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight: Dress, Chivalry, and the Trojan War. Sunday evening. When we were ready to start for church this morning, I was surprised to see Nucky halt before me and eye me frowningly from head to foot. What makes you allus wear old ugly clothes? He inquired. "'Hain't you got no pretty ones like to other women?' I looked down at my black crepe de chine. Of course I have worn deep mourning since I lost my mother, and for six years before I had not had on a color. "'You don't like it?' I asked. "'I'd as soon look at a coal bank or a buzzard,' he replied. It suddenly struck me that the dear ones I have loved and lost would be of much the same opinion. "'Wait a minute, boys,' I said. I flew back and pulled from my trunk a white dress and some black ribbons laid away a year ago. When I emerged, there was a chorus of pleased G.O.s and a decided accession of friendliness, the boys trying who could be first in helping me over the frightful mud-holes between the school and the village. I see my duty clear now, white dresses instead of black. THURSDAY Considering the antecedents of Nucky and Killis, I was not surprised when they informed me this morning they would make beds no longer, but would leave unless given men's work all the time. My reply, but making beds is men's work, was met by incredulous whistles. Now, boys, I said, how about soldiers? Do you call them men? By grab, them's the only men is men. I'd rather be dead as not to be one said Nucky. Gee, fighting's the best job there is, agreed Killis. Well, soldiers make their beds every single day, I said. I have a cousin right now at West Point learning to be a soldier, and when he gets out he will command a whole company, and he makes his bed every morning and couldn't be a soldier if he didn't. The two stood, dazed and pondering for some minutes. Then Nucky quietly flung an end of the sheet across to Killis with the words, "'There, son, take a hold of that kiver, and let's lay it straight.' To my great relief, I heard Keats singing a more cheerful song at his work today. "'Wished I was a little turkle-dove, setting on a limb so high. I'd take my darling on my knee and bid this world good-bye.' And at dinner, by actual count, he ate nine corn-dodgers, three helpings of string beans, four sweet potatoes, and I know not how much sorghum. He still sits with me in the evenings, and I feel now that I have always known nervousty and the four small children at home, especially Sammy, the baby, not to mention Charlie, the flea-bit nag, old Suki, the pied cow, with her twin sons, the steers, Buck, and Brandy, and her daughter Reddy, the heifer, now the proud possessor of a little pied calf and a blind teat. Also the big black sow, Julia, who, true to mountain traditions, never has less than nine in her family, and above all the wonderful dog Ponto, who appears to be all that a dog can and more. And not infrequently during these talks, Keats is called out to help fight some antagonist of hens, Though there is often civil war between the brothers, they always combine against outside aggression. And at other times, Hen will pause breathless on his swift way through house or yard to corroborate some statement of Keats with, 
Gee, woman, that air's a dandy of a dog. He can do anything but climb a tree, and he gets halfway up them. He rounds up the shoats and drives up old Suki, and the steer's gooder than I can. And possums, groundhogs, polecats, dad burn my looks if he hain't the beatenest ever you seed. Friday I have tried all along to respect Jason's feelings and give him jobs which would injure neither his pride nor his person. But yesterday, while we were spading up a patch for turnip and mustard greens, I forgot and sent him off to the schoolyard to pick up trash. An hour later I heard from a passer-by that he had been seen a mile up perilous. "'Don't you recollect him a-saying he would leave if you give him little boy jobs?' Geordie reminded me. "'Saddle the nag and hurry after him,' I implored Toby. Some time later, he overtook the proud child on his way to Spraddle Creek, and brought him back under protest. The boys say they see no good reason why they should say, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. When I told them it was for the sake of politeness, Philip replied, Polite's a lick, Spittle. I don't aim to be polite. I don't have to. I'm able to get what I want without it. This last is only too true. For they shall take who have the power, and they shall keep who can, is the creed of all, but more especially of Philip. This noon, when Iris' father had sent him from Rakeshin a fine, yellow, mellow apple, and the pure scholar was eating it as frugally and lingeringly as possible, Philip came along, snatched it, bit off three-fourths, and coolly handed back the fragment to Irie, who, howling dismally, still had no redress. "'To think you could do such a base thing!' I exclaimed. "'Rob a little boy who cannot defend himself? You ought to be everlastingly ashamed!' "'I was behind the door when shame passed by,' replied the robber flippantly. "'You were indeed,' I agreed. "'I would not believe that a boy named Philip Sidney could be guilty of such a thing.' Then I told him the story of the great Sir Philip, mortally wounded, fevered and athirst, handing the cup of water to the dying soldier beside him, with the words, Your need is greater than mine. He pondered a moment, then remarked, No man would be such a fool. I bet it's just a slander they made up on him. I told him he should lose three days' playtime for his rapacity. Sunday night Last night the Trojan War reached a climax in the death of horse-taming Hector amid shouts of joy from Killis and howls of fury from Nucky. I have seen for two weeks that considerable feeling has developed between the two on the subject, intensifying the natural jealousy each has of the prowess and reputation of the other. This morning I had left the boys at the big house to help with the breakfast dishes, the regular Sunday proceeding, and was standing in the back cottage door drinking in the beauty of the morning and the sabbath peace of the hills, when savage yells smote my ears. Following the sound, I ran to the schoolyard. When I arrived, Nucky had just buried his teeth in Killis's arm, from which the blood was spurting, while Killis was striking out fiercely with his knife. Around the combatants, the other boys formed a delighted, cheering circle, within which Philip danced madly about, shouting, "'Fight, dogs! You ain't no kin!' If you kill one another, taint no sin. In another second, 
Nucky had abandoned the hold with his teeth, and was flashing his own knife around Killis's throat. With a shinny stick, I knocked up one knife after the other, and kept death at bay until four of the grown-up boys arrived and with difficulty separated the heroes and escorted them to the hospital to have their wounds staunched and dressed. Later I heard that Nucky had begun it by leaping upon Killis with the words, "'I'll show you Hector hain't dead yet.' Tonight, when I had the two endurance file and talked to them more severely than I had yet done on the evils of fighting, Nucky, the aggressor, gave as his excuse that his great-great-great-grandpa had fit the British, his great-great-grandpa the Indians, his great-grandpa the Mexicans, his grandpa the rebels, and his pa and Blant the Cheevers ever since he could recollect, and that he himself was just bound to fight. This was sound reasoning, and it brought before me, with hitherto unrealized force, the fact that these boys are in very truth the sons of heroes, of forefathers who fought gloriously for freedom in the Revolution, afterwards subdued the wilderness and the savages, and have since poured forth as one man from their fastnesses to safeguard the Union in every emergency, and that here, forgotten and neglected by an ungrateful state and nation, is the precious stuff of which great patriots and heroes are made. Therefore I did not upbraid Nucky and Killis further. I merely explained to them the difference between fighting just to be fighting, and fighting to save one's country. And since they had no idea who the British, the Mexicans, and the rebels were, told them something of the history and causes of those wars, and how I hoped that they too, when necessary, would fight for their nation. And though to them at first, their country meant their mountains only, and they were surprised to hear that the great level land beyond was also theirs to love and fight for, their affections were hospitable, and with one voice they demanded that an enemy of the nation be produced at once. Here endeth the Trojan War. I see that it has fanned a flame already too intense. Even little Jason slipped out under the benches at church this morning, while I played the organ, and was found an hour later out in the road in front of the courthouse, covered with mud, but glowing with the white-hot joy of having whooped out four at a time of the little village boys. Hereafter I shall tell and read stories of heroes who won glory by fighting not one another, but dragons, giants, gorgons, and like destroyers of their countries." Nucky inquired of me at supper to-night when he might make a visit home to Trigger, whereupon there was an instant and unanimous offer on the part of the boys to accompany him when he goes, and see the hero Blant. He shook his head. "'I hain't aimin' to take none of you,' he said. "'Not if she'll go long with me,' looking at me. "'I,' I said, much complimented. "'Why, surely I will if I can. But it is three weeks yet before your time comes.' The children are permitted to go home over weekends every seven or eight weeks in rotation. I am glad he wants me, and feel a considerable desire to visit Trigger. End of chapter 8